English 325. We were just talking amongst ourselves for a couple of minutes. Those of you who are listening in, pay no mind. So this will be a, a little bit shorter uh, than usual, maybe. So Christopher Columbus's letter of discovery. Usually, I actually assign Christopher Columbus's letter of discovery and the Bartolome de las Casas uh, reading for Monday, um, the same day. And I didn't this year because our schedule is all messed up. Um, but it's important to know that like these two texts, the one we're reading today on Friday and the one we're reading on Monday, they talk to each other in actually really interesting ways, right? Something that came up in my class just prior to this was English 256, which Jennifer is in, and a couple other people have both of these classes together. Sam is in it. Um, if you listen to the recording from today, from that class, one of the things that we talked about at the beginning was like all this controversy around Columbus statues. Right, so anybody from Syracuse here? You're Central Square. You say you're from Syracuse, from Central Square? I tell most people I'm from Syracuse. It's just, I've lived in Syracuse, it's easier. You have? Yeah, I went to school in Syracuse. Where'd you go to school? Right in Stratton. Oh, cool. Yeah. I got James Street? Yeah, 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 yeah. I lived down the street from there for a while. Oh, really? Yeah, I lived in Eastwood. Anyway, anyways, good. So, okay, so you would know then, Sam, being a Syracuse person, that one of the kind of like main drags, the, one of the big kind of public squares in the city of Syracuse is called Columbus Circle. And there's a big statue of Columbus, right? And there's a lot of talk right now around like a working group figuring out what to do with that statue. It hasn't, it hasn't actually been subject to a lot of the like protests and, and like, um, like trying to take it down by force. The reason why is that the city kind of very proactively made this task force with indigenous people and Italian Americans and trying to figure out what to do with the statue. But the statue is Columbus. And then he's way up high on a pedestal in the middle of this kind of beautiful square in um, Syracuse. And uh, right next to his feet on all four sides of the pedestal are uh, the heads of Native Americans. So he's literally like stepping on the heads <laughs> of the Native Americans. And um, I only bring this up because in, in 256 today, we were talking about this, and actually in the forum that we do for that class two, we were kind of talking about these statue controversies, like can we judge people who do things in the past based on contemporary ethics. And I actually find that kind of a, not entirely a persuasive argument, but in some senses it's, a, it's something that we need to talk through, it's a, it's a complexity. But one thing that was brought up in 256 is that like, we shouldn't judge people negatively for doing something in their time that was seen as normal. And that one is something that's really important to kind of critique and to think about in a different way, because what Bartolome de las Casas shows you about Columbus is that there were actually plenty of people, like, from the Spanish imperial process, who knew that the shit that Columbus was doing was really, really, really bad. Right, so like this idea, in the case of Columbus, but also in the case of like, let's say, monuments to the Confederate States of America, the idea that like, there weren't any people in the time who were like, hey, this is fucked up. That's just not, <laughs> that's not true. So whereas like, I, I'm kind of sympathetic to X, Y, or Z argument of, around like, okay, we should probably we shouldn't be tearing down all these historical monuments or something. That argument's not really good. And that's one of the reasons why we read Columbus and De Las Casas, to show that like, yeah, there were people at the time who were like, no, this is like a genocidal maniac. Like, this is really terrible. So, I just use that to kind of, to frame our discussion over the course of Friday and through to Monday. But before we get to the questions, so this globe that's on the title screen here, this is a globe 
from the Age of Exploration, I think it's 15th century. In any case, the, the kind of important thing to know about this globe that's going to kind of frame our, our discussion, at least the kind of first question that we ask, is that on this globe, in the vicinity of what is now like Vietnam, East Asia or something like this, there's a term. I'm going to write it on the board, and I'll just put it on the Blackboard post when I post the slides. Um, it's a term. It's in Latin. It's hic sunt. I don't know how to speak Latin. Does anybody? Dragones. Hic sunt dragones. Anybody take a guess what that means? Something dragons. <laughs> yeah, something, yeah. something dragons. <laughs> Basically, that's what it means. It means here be dragons. Like the idea is that on the globe, in like what is now Vietnam or something, East Asia. The idea is that in that place on the globe, there's just a little label and it says there's dragons here, right? Or if you look at kind of like maps from the Age of Exploration, you'll see like coming out of what is now like the Indian Ocean or kind of the Atlantic. Like, instead of a dolphin, like, cresting out of the water, you'll just see, like, a serpent, like a, like a dragon, something like this. The idea is that, like, these people, back in the day, they didn't know what they were going to find. They had no idea. Like, they had no clue what was going to happen to them. They had no real thoroughgoing sense of what was around them or what they would find. So much so that they kind of made up these fantastical ideas. And that kind of segues us into this first question, right, as we go to the first slides. This is happening in the Columbus letter, right? He's shifting, he's vacillating between what I'm calling in the slide the descriptive and the mythical. So I've given a bunch of kind of examples of the mythical, right, or the supernatural, or kind of things that we know now are not kind of like empirically valid. He's giving a bunch of, he gives you a bunch of examples of that, and we'll read through them. But he also has moments of like pure description too, where he says like, oh, it's like 62 knots between here and there, or this island is this or that long. Of course he's wrong, because he doesn't know how to measure, because the scientific measurements or his scientific instruments are not good. Right, but he's trying, given that. Right, he's trying to like have a descriptive accounting of the geographical particulars of this place. Right? So he's doing that, and he's saying like, oh, there's all these trees, and there's things we could do with this place. But he's also giving us these like strange mythical accountings of what he finds. So I'll read these off and we could talk through like, maybe speculate just a little bit about why you think he's doing both of these at this time. So he says, one of these provinces they call Avan, and there the people are born with tails. Okay. As I have found no monsters, so I have had no report of any, except in an island Quaris, the second at the coming into the Indies which is inhabited by a people who regard it in all the islands as very fierce and who eat human flesh. So there's no monsters except on one island, and these monsters are cannibals. But I haven't been there. I've just heard about it. I, don't know. I mean, it's, it might. I don't know. In another island, which they assure me is larger than Española, um, which I think that's like the Cuba and Española. What is Española now? What, what's that island? It's the one that has Haiti and the DR together. Is that Espanola? I should just cut this from the recording. <laughs> it's one of those islands in the Caribbean, right? And another island, which they assure me is larger than Espanola, the people have no hair in it. There is gold incalculable. So there's a whole race of people on this island that are all bald, right? These are mythical accountings. These are fantastical. These are things that are not empirically observable. So why does he vacillate? Why does he shift between 
such a descriptive accounting of like, okay, it's 60 knots between here and there, and uh, everybody's born with a tail. Why does he do both of those things? Yeah. Um, well, so part of me feels like he did that because he was like, I was like kind of reading more about this letter, and this was like kind of like what people in Europe were like finding out with what's happening in the New World. Yeah. So I think he's trying to make, like, basically his like purpose of the letter is to make it seem like he's like finding exciting stuff, so it's like kind of worthwhile and profitable. And I think that like, so like one thing I was thinking about is if he's sending this to like make it because like a lot of the he talks about like how good the land is and stuff, yeah. but I'm thinking maybe he does this to kind of. Because, like, they're not exactly, like, nice descriptions. Like, he talks about, like, potentially, like, cannibals who are, like, eating. Like, so I think he's kind of trying to, like, degrade, like, the indigenous people who live there so that it makes it seem like they're not, it, they don't matter, really. Like, they're just, like, mythical, like, supernatural beings. Like, if we're going to use their land, it's fine because they eat human flesh and they have tails. Like, I think he's kind of trying to... Like make it seem like he's found this amazing land, yeah. but like you don't have to worry about the people here right. because that's not what matters. What matters is the land is arable and good for planting and stuff. That's awesome. So you're pointing at like you're actually pointing at not only this question but the next two as well, right? Like not only just how, why does he describe these places as mythical, but how does he describe the land and how does he describe the people, right? And so you're absolutely right, and we're going to talk about this in the next couple of slides. That what Columbus is trying to do in this moment is entice people to basically invest in his exploration, right? And we're gonna talk about like how he describes the land in those terms, we're gonna talk about how he describes the people in those terms, but Josie, I take your point, really interesting, not something I necessarily thought about too much, but there's another element to that, like another way to entice people into this exploration, if not to invest, at least to be kind of engaged with it, if not entertained by it, is to kind of suggest that like there are fantastical beasts roaming around, that this is a magical place. Of course you would be more inclined to pay attention to what Columbus is doing if, there, if you think there are cool monsters there. Yeah, great, okay, what else? That's a really strong point, right? It's basically entertainment. It, it invests a kind of like fantastical, magical quality in this land and it brings readers or people into the fold of the experience. Why else might he be shifting between these two things? There's no like right or wrong answer here, there's just a couple of different speculative ones. So if we take it away from just like why is there the mythical aspect and think about it more particularly as why does he do this weird shift? Like why isn't it one or the other? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. I think he wants to show both because um, before finding like the entire Western Hemisphere, um, Columbus was not a very good explorer. He was very, very bad. Um, yeah. So this was kind of like his last hurrah and he wants to show that like he found something worth people funding him. Okay. So he's like, look, I found all this land. So here's like the actual measurements of it, the actual thing that you can have. Plus, there's all these crazy people here, so you guys can come gawk at them. Right. So there's, he's trying to like get across the grandeur of what he's found. Yeah. Yeah. Columbus, something that both of you have brought up now, Josie and Seth, like, he was a kind of like inveterate self-promoter. Like he wanted to be known as like the most famous person like he, he wanted that publicity, not because like of course he wanted his name on like TV or something. That kind of stuff didn't exist. Like mass media didn't exist in the way we think of it now. Really, what he was after is like fame and fortune for his family. Right? He wanted to build a name for himself so so that he could like accumulate wealth that would allow him to have a, a generational 
funding of his family. So yeah, to accentuate the kind of grandeur of what he's found, he might appeal to the mythic. That makes perfect sense, too. A third one to add on to both of those, which are completely right, is that the Age of Exploration, especially the early Age of Exploration, in like 1492 and the late 15th century, is really this kind of like pivotal moment in world history. Right? So we're coming out of something that we might call the Dark Ages, now, like, the Dark Ages were never as dark as we assume, but what do we, what's, what are the Dark Ages? What were the Dark Ages? What are they characterized by, if you know anything about them? Like, medieval times, the Dark Ages. What do they suggest to you? Yeah. I mean, like, extreme, like, poverty and strife and struggles and yeah. stuff like that. Extreme poverty, strife, and struggles, plagues. Maybe we're in a Dark Age now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, a lot of social unrest. A lot of strife, a lot of struggle, extreme poverty. Um, what else? The Dark Ages. What does dark mean? It means like emotional disturbance. It means dark like it's sad and it's shitty. Yeah. Well, this is, this is like what it, one thing the Dark Ages are not is like a time for like art and yes. like it's not exactly like a amazing, like beautiful, like there's not art or like culture isn't as like, like it's not the Renaissance. <laughs> right, that's exactly right. So the dark not only means like dark as in depressing or sad, dark means like as in no light, wherein light symbolizes like knowledge, right? The dark ages are a depressing and sad time. They're full of plagues and pestilence. But they're also a time where like, so the story goes, this is not totally true, but so the story goes, uh, learning is not happening, right? No new scientific advancements are being made. The Enlightenment, or the Renaissance, the Enlightenment has not happened. The reason why we call the Dark Ages the Dark Ages is that right after the Dark Ages, the Enlightenment happens, like the light bulb goes off, and learning and knowledge and exploration starts to occur, right? And so what Columbus is doing is he's writing really at, at the cusp. He's writing at the end of something we might call the Dark Ages and at the very beginning of something we might call the Enlightenment, right? He's writing at the end of a time that's characterized by... Um, fantastical speculations about the nature of the universe. And he's writing at the beginning of an era that's known not for fantastical speculations, like, oh, there's definitely dragons there. Yeah, 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 for sure. That no longer cuts it in the Enlightenment, right? In the Enlightenment, what's it about? It's about empirical, observable fact. It's about the scientific method. It's about going and finding things, right? It's about exploring and experimenting. So, again, Columbus is writing right at that hinge point, right, between, like, speculation and fantasy, a lack of knowledge, a lack of learning, and the new era in world history, at least Western world history, where exploration, experimentation, empirical knowledge is becoming valued again. So we're moving out of the quote-unquote dark and moving into the quote-unquote light. So... With that history in mind, why does he shift between them? Just to ask you to kind of reinforce the point, yeah. I think, I mean, for one, it's his, like, it's where he is in culture, but also it, by doing both, he can appeal to masses. Right, so yeah, both of those points are absolutely right. So, like, Columbus, even though we understand him to be this kind of, like, world historic figure almost out of time, Right? He's still with us. He's on monuments and things 500, 600 years hence. 
he was very much a person of his time, right? He was of his time. He was writing at this hinge point. And so it actually makes perfect sense that he would have these mythic conceptions of the world, but also be really invested in like precisely, minutely describing things. Because he's literally at the cusp between those. And Savannah, the other thing you're saying is like, he's kind of playing both sides, right? He's doing both so he can kind of bring in a bigger audience. I think that's right too, okay? So if we, again, if we're gonna you know, step aside or step back in this moment to talk through the answers to this question, the, the one, there's a couple really. I mean, there's what Josie said and Savannah, your first point, bringing both of those together is it kind of entices an audience. It brings an audience into the fold of what he's doing, either for investment or otherwise, right? By highlighting the fantastical, the mythical, the grand. But then two, in terms of history, not just in terms of Columbus as a kind of rhetorical or historical figure, but in terms of the bigger historical consciousness here, Columbus is, again, writing at the cusp of a new era in Western world history. He's writing at the end of the Dark Ages, and he's writing at the beginning of the Enlightenment. And so it makes perfect sense that his descriptions of the new world would meld those two eras, right? He would have on one level the fantastical, and on the other the empirical, the observable, the descriptive. Questions on that? Okay, cool. So let's move on to the second uh, slide, content slide. There's Cristo, Cristoforo Colombo. Um, why does he, how does he describe the Lancey encounter? And Josie kind of brought us to some of these points, but we're going to kind of make a little bit more of them uh, here. So let's read this first one. And there he gets to uh, the Indies. And there I have found very many islands filled with people innumerable, and of them all I have taken possession for their highnesses by proclamation made and with the royal standard unfurled, and no opposition was offered to me. So let's think about this historical moment that Columbus is kind of writing through. He lands in these places, he gets out of his boat, he takes the little ship to the shore, and what does he do? What does he find and what does he do in that first passage? He finds a bunch of people. What does he do? Yeah. Well, I kind of like mentioned this in my response yeah. paper. I like wrote about how he kind of looks at the land and has like dollar signs in his eyes. Yeah. Like he's like this, like yeah. he sees it like specifically for profit. Yeah. But like one thing, he says no opposition was offered to me, and I also wrote about this. I like mentioned how um, I feel like that's kind of unlikely because many times he talks about how he's already taken possession of like the people there, and I'm like, so you're talking about people that you already have captured. Right. So I'm sure what you're saying right. is not reliable, but yeah. also what we like know based on reading like the Iroquois and uh, like the other, I think it was the Navajo creation story, and then I actually looked at some other ones, is like mo a lot of indigenous cultures, like their creation stories have a lot to do about the importance of the land. So it just, to me, it seems like, like when he says no opposition, I'm like, it doesn't make sense because like clearly, the, like this is like their home and like they live here and it like their creation stories like are about the like things nearby, like stuff like that. So it's not only not only in the creation stories is it about the importance of the land and the place that they inhabit, right? They're indigenous to this place, but also you see in particularly the Navajo creation story, although also to a, a lesser extent the Iroquois one, this insistence on the importance of peaceful encounters, right, between peoples, right? That's something that came up on Wednesday. Um, so yeah, both of those things 
give the lie to this idea of no opposition. Okay, and we're going to talk more about that in this next slide when we talk about the people themselves. Yeah, that's a great point. So when he says, I have taken possession for their highnesses by proclamation made and with the royal standard unfurled, he's actually talking about a very particular historical process that happens over the course of the age of the exploration, particularly in the Spanish context. It's called the requerimiento. It doesn't matter how to spell it. You don't need to know anything like that. But the point is that once these explorers come onto the land that they're trying to take over, they have a document in their hand and they have a flag in their hand. It doesn't matter if anybody's around, right? It doesn't matter. Usually nobody's around. They just come to this land, they plant the flag in the ground, and they read. And basically what they read is they say, all of this that I can see here is now the possession of the Spanish crown. Right? So what he's doing in this moment is basically like performing something akin to an imaginative colonization. Right? He's not actually taking this place over. He hasn't done anything yet. He's just showed up. But he's saying to himself, this is all mine now. Crazy. Right? Crazy. He's saying, this is all mine now. No opposition was offered to me. I made a proclamation, and I put a flag in the ground. And because I did those two things, this is all Spanish now. Right? Okay. I mean, that's absurd. That's totally absurd. But let's follow through this idea and think through the implications of that for how Columbus thinks about the lands that he inhabits. So let's go to the second passage and kind of think through them in concert with one another. To the first island, which I found, I gave the name San Salvador. To the second, I gave the name Isla de Santa Maria de Concepcion. To the third, Fernandina. To the fourth, Isabella. To the fifth, Isla Juana. I don't speak Spanish. I don't know if that's right. Anybody got a, got a help on me? Sounds good enough, right? And so to each one, I shouldn't say that, should, we should say it right if we want. And so to each one I gave a new name. Okay, uh, what if I came to class next Friday and Carolina just started calling you Rebecca? <laughs> I just insisted on it. I just started calling you Rebecca over and over again every time you talk. Every time you raise your hand I said Rebecca. What, 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 would, what would you think? I mean, you'd be... I mean, it's like you're taking someone's identity. Yeah. Much. Like, I guess, like, who I am is kind of based around my name, basically. Like, how you're raised, not how you're raised, but, like, your personality and everything. So once you take away that, it's like everything about you has to be different and change to function with that new name. Yeah, in a very fundamental way, your name kind of, as you say, like, denotes particular aspects of your identity we understand ourselves really in relation to our name. And so if I were to come by, and instead of calling you by your name, just start calling you Rebecca, what am I doing? You wanna to add to that? Yeah, I yeah. feel like I keep talking. No, it's fine. There's five um, people here, so it's, it's cool. <laughs> well, like, when you, like, you would be erasing the fact that, like, people who cared about you picked out a name for you, and potentially the reasons for the name, like, yeah. if it was, like, significant to your, past or your family history or something important to your family. So like it's not just erasing like your own personality, but it kind of like erases other things that have happened. Like it, it erases like kind of like part of your history too. Erasing history, erasing culture, maybe you're named after somebody. In this case like spirituality almost. Yeah, totally. Like you're, you're erasing all of those elements of you. And so when I do that to you, when I say like, no, you're going to be Rebecca now, 
Basically, what I'm doing is exerting control over you. I'm exerting a measure of power over you by, by saying I can rename the place that you live or the person that you are or the name that you have, right? And so if we take these two passages together, what is he kind of doing, right? He steps on the land, he puts the flag down, he reads the proclamation, he says it's all mine now, and then he proceeds to rename all of the places. What is he, what is he suggesting about the land that he is inhabiting right now? Yeah. Even though he knows there's people, he's like, I'm just going to give them a new name. I don't care what they were named. Yeah. It's mine now, so deal with it. Yeah, and you're speaking to the profound paradox here because, of course, he knows these places are peopled. He knows that these places have names. He knows that there's histories and cultures embedded in these places. And yet he thinks, through what we can see of this passage, that nobody's here. At least nobody to care about, to go back to Josie's point, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what he's doing is he's suggesting is that land is completely open to his power and control. No matter that they already have names, that people are already here, it doesn't matter. The land is completely vulnerable and open to him. I think it also gives an air of, like, self-importance, like, even though there's this whole land of people who already have names for everything, who already have names for each other and their own culture. He's like, even though there's one of me and... 400,000 of you, it doesn't matter because I'm more important than all of you combined. Great, yeah, so it suggests a sense of superiority, like an innate superiority. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, uh, one thing, like when I first read this, I didn't really, um, like, first, I don't know, now that we're like talking about, like, I never really thought of it also as like a power play kind of to like, like establish control. Yeah. Like, cause like that's like so obvious when you're talking about it. But like when I first read it, like I was like focused more on the fact of like what he was specifically like doing. But I didn't like think about it. Like he's kind of just like saying that he's like more powerful, and you were saying like superiority. Like that didn't even like really strike me when I like first read it. It's a rhetorical move, but it has real consequence, right? Cause of course, like he's not actually taking control of these places. Like physically speaking stepping onto the land and reading a document is not actually taking control in any meaningful way, right? So it's a rhetorical move that he's making. It's an imaginative move to go back to that idea of an imaginative colonization. That's kind of what he's about here. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, the ignorance of it all plays yeah. in, like, so much. And, like, even now, like, we see it, but, like, the idea of, like, you're here, but you're not as good as me, so I deserve this land yeah. more than you is, like, the biggest like slap in the face to anyone. Yeah. So like him coming in, like taking the land, basically enslaving, selling these people, like raping, pillaging everything is just like again like the power that he thinks he has to do it. It's like right. and you, and you see the roots of that power in the way that the letter is written. Right? You see the justification, rhetorical and otherwise the acts that are taken by how the letter is written, right? You see why somebody like Columbus believes himself to be superior, innately so, or more powerful or in control through these passages. Yeah, great. So let's wrap that with the second one, or the third one, excuse me. Um, in it, the land, are marvelous pine groves, and there are very large tracts of cultivatable lands, and there's honey. There was no honey. <laughs> Honeybees are not native to the Western Hemisphere. There might have been something that was sweet. Sugar? Yeah, I mean, there might have been something that was sweet and like kind of looked like honey, but 
And then this just gives the lie to like Columbus's descriptive like empirical desire here or impulse. Like there, there was no honey because there were there, the honeybee is not native to the Americas. So like the honeybee is literally impossible that there's honey there. Okay. And there are birds of many kinds and fruits in great diversity. In the interior are mines of metals, the Sierras and mountains, the plains and arable lands and pastures are so lovely and rich for planting and sowing, for breeding cattle of every kind, for building towns and villages. The harbors of the sea here are such as cannot be believed to exist unless they have been seen, and so with the rivers, many and great and good waters, the majority of which contain gold. Damn, this place sounds awesome. <laughs> why does he describe, well, in what way is he describing the land, and then maybe why? How is he describing the land? He's trying to make it seem like, truly like, the best place on the planet. Yeah. Like it's he's, paradise. Yeah. yeah. He's, and I think he's doing it for, um, one reason specifically, which is that he's basically trying to sell, like, the Americas to the Spaniards. And he's like, remember all of those years that I was a crap voyager? Like, look now. Yeah. <laughs> right, this is exactly right. What he's describing here is this kind of paradisical, almost utopian landscape, right? But every description that he makes, it's not just like, I mean, there's a couple of moments where he's like, oh, it's beautiful here, right? But by and large, when he describes the land, he's not just describing it in terms of its beauty, in terms of its kind of natural radiance or something. He's always describing the land in terms of its utility, right? It's arable land. It's land that you can breed cattle on. It's land that you can have towns and villages built on. The harbors are really deep. We can get our ships in here, right? There are a lot of rivers and they're navigable. That means that we can start at the coast and we can get far inland to do the work that we need to do. Really big trees, we can build masts with them, right? All of these things, when he describes, by and large, when he describes the land, it's all about the utility of the land. It's a beautiful place, but it's not like paradise, it's not a paradise to be looked at, gawked at, and wondered over. It's a paradise to be stripped, mined. Yeah. I think the way he speaks about the land, too, also, in a, in a way, kind of is like, Look at all of this land that they're just wasting. Like, yes. they're not using it the way that we would use it, which is why it's okay that we're taking it over, because we would use it in the proper way, and they're just wasting it. Right, that's another good point. And that comes to the, his conception of the people, which we'll get to, is that the, the, the native people themselves are not using the land in a way that is um, taking advantage of what it could provide for them. Yeah. So, yeah, to, to, he describes the land in terms of its utility. Right, it's never really fundamentally in terms of its beauty. It's a beautiful place, but he's describing the land in terms of its utility, and Sav kind of brought us initially to the point of why, right? The reason why, of course, is that he's trying to sell this place, right? He's trying to sell this place as a, um, a place that more exploration should come to. Why? What does that do for Columbus? Like, if he, if he says to the king and queen of Spain, this place is awesome, it's gonna help us so much. Like, you guys should really spend some time thinking about giving more resources to this place. Like, it's, uh, it has all the resources we need to, to conquer the new world. Why would Columbus be so invested in saying that to basically his benefactors, his sponsors? It benefits him for people to, you know, go there and then they're like, oh yeah, this is great. And, you know, Columbus gets stuff out of that. Yeah. Put up on higher on the pedestal, and you know he can be seen as, 
you know, I don't know how else to describe it, but basically he can benefit a lot for himself. Yeah. He benefits in terms of like fame, he gets put up on a pedestal or something to go back to that statue at the beginning in Syracuse. He gets put up on that, on that pedestal, but also like if he can um, demonstrate and prove to his benefactors that this place is worth continuing to explore, that means he gets more money to go back and do it again. Right? Every time he's sent out, he's making money. Like he takes a cut. Right? Columbus takes a cut of what he finds. Right? So he's getting rich off the the success of the exploration. So of course he wants to go back. Of course he wants more ships. Of course he wants more men because it's enriching him. It's enriching his family. It's providing something like what we would call generational wealth for the Columbus family. Right? So how does he describe the Lancian countries? He describes them basically as open to colonization, available. Um, he's describing them as kind of um, totally controllable as open to his exertions of power, and he describes them purely in terms of their utility, what they can do for him and the Spanish for their colonial project. And why does he do that? He does that because he wants to promote or provoke more investment in his practices. He wants to explore more because that will enrich him. Right? So the, the really important thing to take away here is that the land is not just some kind of neutral thing here. The land is not neutrally described. It's not even described in terms of its beauty. It's always described in terms of what it can do for Columbus and what it can do for the Spanish Empire. Okay, okay what about the people? Is this the last slide yet? Um, perfect, good time. So how does he describe the people he encounters? He says, in conclusion, I kind of want to do a little close reading of this one. There's an interesting thing to say about this first passage. In conclusion, their highnesses can see that I will give them as much gold as they may need, spice and cotton and mastic and aloe wood and slaves, as many as they shall order to be shipped and who will be from the idolaters. Idolaters means not Christians. And I believe that I have found rhubarb and cinnamon. He didn't find cinnamon. And I shall find a thousand other things of value. What's notable about how this passage is put together? Yeah. Well, one thing that stands out to me is the fact that he's saying he will give the people these things, even though it's like not his, it's not his right. actually to give. Like yeah. these, uh, the people living there, it's actually theirs. Yeah. Like they were the ones like harvesting it and like growing it and doing whatever like they were doing with it. And he just kind of is coming in. He's like, well, I'll give all this stuff to you, yeah. but like it's not really like a lot of the stuff like the they already are had. Like I don't know. It's like interesting how he's kind of like making it seem like he's like been, he's like the one that's like helping these people out. Or that he owns it, right? So yeah. on one level, the presumption that's kind of inherent to this passage is that the people who are actually inhabiting this place or who have been don't have any kind of power or control or ownership over the resources of the places that they inhabit. That's one assumption about the people. What else? I was just going to say, it's almost like he, he came onto a farm where they were like growing grapes. He picked all of their grapes and was like, look what I grew for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. yeah great. Okay, that's perfect. That's, that is definitely here. And there's one other thing to mention about how he describes the people, and it's more of a kind of, it's a smaller thing, and it comes out of literally how this sentence is put together, and particularly how the seriality of it works, how the list of it works. So he says, I can give you gold, I can give you spice, I can give you cotton, I can give you mastic, I can give you aloe wood, I can give you slaves, I can give you rhubarb, I can give you cinnamon. In that list, there's 
one of these things is not like the other, right? <laughs> when you go spices and cotton, mastic, aloe, with slaves, what? Slaves. <laughs> right, so what does that suggest? In terms of his conception of the people that he encounters. If they're just in a line with all these other things, what does it suggest about his, his perception of the slaves? That they want slaves? And that they're not worth anything. Yeah, not, like, yes, of course that they want slaves, absolutely. In addition to all the other natural resources. Mm -hmm. But not only that they want slaves in addition to the natural resources, but that the people who are already here are just natural resources. Mm -hmm. That is to say that they're kind of not people in the same way that people from the West are. Right? If you can put in a line, aloe, spice, cotton, people, cinnamon, rhubarb, and not see the contradiction between people and rhubarb, what you're suggesting is that the people that you're encountering are more like rhubarb, than they are like you, right? So that's one thing that he's saying about the people he encounters, is that they're kind of subhuman. They're more like natural resources for us to mine, to take advantage of. They're not really people that we need to account for. They're not important. What else? It is true that after they have been reassured and have lost their fear, they're so guileless, that means they like don't have any suspicion about anything, and so generous with all they possess, that no one would believe it who has not seen it. They never refuse anything which they possess, if it be asked of them. On the contrary, they invite anyone to share it. So what is he saying about people here? About the native inhabitants of the land? Yeah? Like, they want to give this stuff to them. They want to share it. They're grateful they're here to take it, pretty much. Yeah, good. Do you want to add to that, Sam? I was basically going to say the same thing. They just are like, oh, we're not scared of it anymore. Here's everything we have. You can have it. Yeah, exactly. So what Columbus is perceiving is that the hospitality that these native inhabitants are showing him is indicative of, it's evidence for, the fact that they basically have no conception of property. Right? That they will give away everything they own this goes into this, the next passage, give away everything they own because they basically have no conception of ownership, right? They will give away everything, yeah. Um, so this, like, specifically has to do with, like, how he, like, describes the people. So he says guileless, yeah. and then a few times, I don't know how to pronounce the word, but, like, a few times he, he says, like, timorous or, like... Oh, yeah. And I didn't know what that meant, so I looked it up, and it means, like, weak and, like, yeah. not... Fearful. Yeah, yeah. fearful and... He basically is just using like language that makes it sound like they're like incapable and like scared of them and just kind of like stupid. Like he's making them seem like, and they're clearly not like they have like a whole civilization. Like they're all living and like have their own cultures and stuff. And he like talks about them like they actually like he. I mean like like a classic like of course that you hear is like he calls them savages. But like these other words, like maybe they're not as like overtly like horrible as savages, but he's still calling them like kind of like stupid and like less than human and like not like they're re they're not real people because they're not Westerners is kind of what he's saying. Right, and when you say like, of course that's not the case. Like they had cultures, they had civilizations. Like we know that from a twenty first century perspective because we have some kind of thoroughgoing sense of the 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 horrors of colonization. But you wouldn't necessarily know that from the letter, right? Like Columbus is. Stridently telling us that that's not the case in the letter. Yes, yeah, I think it's really interesting too because, like, soon after this, obviously, Columbus starts seeing natives as savages and says, like, "Oh, they're so dangerous. We have to, yeah. like, stop them." Whereas in this letter, he's like, 
oh, they're like docile little babies. Like you try to take their candy and they give it up and start crying. When that's obviously not the case. He just showed up and was like, it's mine now. Yeah, this is great. This is another connection between 256, um, the other class. Oh yeah, you took. Yes. (laughs) Took a class last semester. That's exactly what we're talking about, this idea of the Indian. This expectation around Indianness, it changes depending on historical context. So like Columbus is very invested in this idea of native people as guileless and timorous at this moment because they're not a threat to him yet. Right. As and soon as they yeah, two years later, he's like, Oh, all of a sudden yeah. they're not letting me expand my yard by four hundred acres. Right. As soon <laughs> so. as they become a threat, then the nature of their savagery changes. They are no longer guile guileless savages, they are violent savages. Either way, we have to colonize. Either way, we have to take them over, whether they're guileless savages or violent ones, but right. the, the nature of it changes, yeah. So like specifically the the part about private property, like yeah. I might be totally wrong, but I think right before that, like in that same paragraph, he mentions how women, he thinks, do more work than the men. I don't, is that in this, I can't yeah. remember if I read yeah, yeah, that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which, that was like interesting to me because it just totally shows like what he thinks is like a man, like that's, like from like Europe, like yeah. it shows it like kind of says like a bit about like Western culture because like I know like there are several like indigenous cultures that were like matriarchal yeah. and not patriarchal. Right. So I think it's interesting how he even points that out. Like he like because you wouldn't think that it would be something necessary to include, but it almost sounds like he's trying to make it seem like the men are weak because the women do more work. No, that's precisely what he's trying. So to like do. he's like, that's oh yeah, like ah, uh, you know, like the women do more work than the men. So like look at what they're doing over. Like you know, that's, he kind of is, like making them like he just like is using like subtle ways yeah. to make it seem. Seem, make them seem weak. That's exactly what he's trying to do by saying that the women do more than the men. He's trying to subtly, again, with timorousness, with guileless, with like they don't wear anything on their bodies and they have no conception of what a sword is. He's subtly poking. He's like, hey, this is going to be really easy. Like, we're going to take these people over and it's going to be fine. Like, not only is it going to be fine, they're going to like, we're not even going to have to work. They're just going to give it to us. Now, he probably knows on some level that, that, that that's not entirely the case, right? The reason, again, why he's writing it in these terms is because he's trying to entice further investment, right? Of course, if you're trying to inv- entice further investment, the person you want to get money from, you're going to tell them, like, oh, it's going to be fine. No big deal. Got it under control. Like, they're happy about it, right? Even if it's not the case, you're going to write that if you're an asshole. Um, <laughs> you're going to do that, right? So, yeah, to just put a bow on this... Um, like, I've not been able to learn if they hold private property, right? Everything they have, they give away. And then he says that they traveled three days' journey and found an infinity of small hamlets and people without number, but nothing of importance. And that just kind of put a, puts a bow on the whole thing. It's like, Columbus writes that he found a bunch of people, but they're not important. Right? That's just kind of to put a bow on the whole idea here, is that he finds a bunch of people, but he doesn't realize that these people are important, or he doesn't want to realize that they're important. So how does he describe the people he encounters? To kind of wrap up all these things we've been saying, right? He describes them as essentially more akin to natural resources to be taken advantage of than actually people themselves. Yeah. I think it's interesting because I would almost argue that he sees them as even less than the natural yeah. resources. He literally says there's they are not important. Right. But right. like there's amazing rhubarb and like all of this space to grow cattle. Actually, that's a great point, right? So it's maybe not even that like. The, the native people are in seriality and kind of in an equal position to the resources, but like maybe even less, right? Yeah, at least in their humanity, 
right? They're less yeah. important. Yeah. So they're guileless, they're weak. What that gives his readers a sense of is that this whole colonization process is going to be easy. They give everything that they have, right? So like basically what he's trying to do by describing the people in these terms is say like, one, they're subhuman and they're savages, but two, like, this whole process is going to be quite, quite easy to accomplish, right? Because the people here are not going to put up a fight, right? They're either scared of us or they're kind of like wilded out by all the crazy stuff we have. Like they have no conception of all of these new things that we're bringing to them, right? They think we're gods almost, right? So if we wrap all this up together and kind of step back from it, it's, yeah, it's this idea that native people are subhuman, native people are savage, native people don't have conceptions of private property, native people give away everything they own, even if they have a, conce if they have a conception of ownership at all. Right? Fundamentally, the native people there are of no importance. They certainly are not a hindrance. They don't stand in the way of the colonizing enterprise. Any concluding thoughts on this? Okay, so for Monday, we'll kind of look at the flip side of the coin. It's a really short reading for what it's worth, um, but, but, a, but a useful one. And, and on Monday, for the people who are going to be here on Monday, we might get into the statue debate a little bit more, too. Okay, thanks folks. Have a good one. Uh, if you have a